0: Hey everyone, welcome back to Champions of Security. I'm your host, Jacob Garrison, and today I am so excited to be speaking with Justice Post. Justice is a seasoned security professional who brings his secure-by-design philosophy everywhere he goes. If you've ever wondered how to build an effective relationship between security and development, or if you're looking into transformation projects to level up your security posture, Justice is ready to share his wealth of knowledge with you. All right, Justice, thank you so much for joining me today. I really appreciate you coming on. Thank you for having me, Jacob. Sweet. So, you know, one thing that I think is really interesting about your start into security, uh, sort of how you got there, and I, I think it's a story that that would be worth telling. So do you mind just sort of walking us through, you know, your educational journey and how you got into tech um, and how you ended up where you, you know, sort of where you're at today?
1: Sure, absolutely. Um, yeah, so I have... Uh... Maybe an atypical story, but maybe uh, these days becoming more and more common. But I really started out in security and technology in general when I was very young. When I was like uh, 13 or 14 years old, I got into uh, messing around on the computer and um, finding uh, ways to manipulate websites and web applications. And I thought that was interesting, being able to do whether that's a directory traversals Um, or just playing around with the URL. Um, Always interesting as a young person to try to explore the boundaries. Um, That kind of got me into technology in general, and um, I got my A-plus certification when I was uh, 17, I think, in 1998, (laughs) way back, and uh, kind of kicked it all off. I started uh, repairing computers, building computers, uh, got into... uh, writing HTML and CSS JavaScript for websites. Um, and then it kind of continued that throughout my career. Um, I've held lots, many different roles, uh, from web development to tech support, to, uh, all up, all different types of engineering roles, uh, in telecom and in, uh, computing. So, um, it's been a varied journey, but, uh, all focused in technology and
0: uh, definitely many years in software development. Cool. And so you mentioned, you know, manipulating websites. Um, That's before developer tools, you know, as a quick pop up on Google Chrome, right? So like, how did you figure that out? Was that something that you just started like playing around with that you read about it in a book? You know, like what what was the, the learning method at that time?
1: Uh, yeah, well, back then there was a little magazine called 2600, the Hacker Quarterly. Highly recommended. Still available today. Very good resource. Um, but, yeah, I, I uh, found a bookstore that had uh, 2600, and that helped me understand telecom. They do a lot of telecom hacking um, with uh, blue boxes. And being able to, uh, back then, there was uh, DTMF. I love for the phone systems and you could be, you were able to manipulate them and make a free long distance calls, which back then that was important today. That's entirely irrelevant, <laughs> <laughs> but that, that was a good resource. Uh, I also used MIRC uh, chat rooms and chat groups. And uh, I found groups of people uh, that were like-minded and we all just kind of shared resources. Obviously the internet uh, has always been a good tool uh to researching how to uh, break things or how things work, uh, white papers, uh, and just reading and being absorbed in uh, the concepts of technology in general. A lot of times, kind of gives you insight on what things could be broken
0: or w- what things could be taken advantage of. And, and so, when you were growing up, did your parents ever ask you to help them make free long distance calls? Were they like, hey, come manipulate this phone so that we can call our friends?
1: No, absolutely not. My mother would uh, not, she would not have that for sure. Uh, <laughs> She did give me space to basically do whatever I was doing, but I tried not to really overly articulate what exactly was going on. I had a friend in Australia, so it was uh, super expensive to call. And
0: okay. so once I could figure out how to make calls and stuff, I, I thought that was really interesting. Sweet. And, and yeah, I'm, I'm imagining that the uh, like legal statute of limitations has probably passed where the telecom companies can't come after you anymore for that. <laughs> that technology
1: doesn't even exist anymore. so. <laughs>
0: Awesome and and so you know one one thing that I think is pretty cool that could be inspirational for people that are you know interested in getting into the technology world was the way that you transitioned into Nike. Um, so, Justice, you worked at Nike for for nine years, I think. Is that right? Uh, uh, yeah, there about. Uh, I was a,
1: a a third party. I had a company who had a contract with Nike. Uh, then I was a contractor for Nike, uh, like at a ten ninety nine contractor. And then I converted to a full-time employee and I was there about eight years as a W2 employee.
0: Okay, cool. And so when you, you started off in that contract role, um, and, and you had, you had built their like golf.com or their golf website, right? Like that was sort of the thing you're working on. Um, is that, is that right?
1: Uh, Yeah, so uh, I have a a small company uh, doing custom software development, and I partnered with uh, graphic art and design agencies. Uh, They're really good at storytelling and putting together the graphics and the illustrating, uh, which ultimately is is the major lever for sales. Anybody in uh, technology probably knows uh, trying to sell abstract technology to clients can be real tricky. But when you have beautiful graphics and pictures, it seems much easier to get people to buy in. And a lot of the art and uh, graphic design companies uh, tell those stories. They make those uh, graphics and they can, they can get the contracts, but then they promise to build a website out of that or a web application out of that. And usually they don't have the skills or talent to actually do that. So they would call somebody like me and uh, we would, actually build the website
0: that reflects the graphics uh that they put together. Okay, cool. And so you know, th- this was maybe obviously before my time, so I'm wondering like was were that were those organizations were they the original sort of UX designers like is that kind of what that role is today? Um Yeah,
1: that's not they are today and that's uh that's what they were at that time too. Um they Uh, Those types of people or those types of companies, agencies, oftentimes, they function very similar the way that uh, a web development company would function in that they're creating a design or ideas and they're selling that to a client. Um, Just part of that is the functional part of it, which would be where I would step in and either myself or bring together a team to build out the functional side
0: of whatever the design is that they've. Uh, sold the client on perfect yeah and and so that's you know that's your way into nike and then correct me if i'm wrong here but nike is where you started on your application security journey right like that was sort of where that became uh, a larger part of your career is that correct
1: yeah that's where it really became formalized um so after i did the project with uh nike golf i built a lot of the uh data layer uh as nike.com was becoming a thing, becoming developed and becoming a true uh, e-commerce property. Um, I w- join nike.com as a tech lead at uh, working on nike.com. So uh, doing like front end development, JavaScript creating, you know, uh, again, kind of taking the design, the graphic design and turning it into a functioning, uh, you know, web asset. Um, I was doing like lunch and learns uh, and doing like developer education on security. Around the same time Nike created a uh, corporate information security group and uh, I went to their very first uh, hackathon called Insidious and uh, did pretty well there, talked to some people and uh, ended up getting an offer to do an internal transfer. So I went from working in Nike.com to transferring within Nike to.
0: Uh, corporate information security um, on an application security team. Awesome. And so that you brought up quite a few things I want to dig into. Um, the first one is the lunch and learn. So, c- can you tell me, like, was that something that you got inspired to start that it already exists? Like, sorry, can, can we get some details around what, what those lunch and learns look like? Yeah, I don't remember if it
1: specifically existed before that. I know that there were other similar type of lunch and learn, so I don't think there were any uh, necessarily that were security-focused. That was my interest and something that I was uh, interested in. Um, But yeah, we had an opportunity to uh, do like catered lunch uh, and do developer education, so I took advantage of that and put together a couple... um, engineer
0: focused, uh, security related, uh, lunch, lunch and learn type opportunities. Perfect. And, and, you know, what were your lessons learned? Like, what do you feel like, uh, people really gra- grasped onto from what you can remember? And, you know, there's sort of like areas for improvement, like what, for anyone that's listening that might be inspired to do that sort of thing, you know, like, what would your advice be for that?
1: Yeah, really, I, I think my advice is just uh, pick, a, pick a topic that's relevant. A lot of times, uh, you, you know, security is a really big field, and you can pick things out of left field. Uh, you know, we could talk about quantum computing. We could talk about, you know, cracking RSA keys. But is that something that your engineering team is actually working on? Let's talk about something that they're actually doing. If there's a current, uh, you know, uh, sprint objective to create uh, in, input fields, let's talk about code injection. Uh, Let's talk about code sanitation. Let's talk about data obfuscation. There's a lot of topics that you can choose from in security, but just pick something that people are actually working on or a vulnerability that maybe has been recently exploited. Um, At one of my recent employers, um, they had a ransomware attack. So um, that for me was a very uh, specific item that I could use as educational resource, like, hey, to prevent that type of attack, these are some of the things you want to take into consideration. You can't get them all necessarily in one lunch and learn, but you managing several lunch and learns, playing that long game, you can break up all of the concepts. And maybe over a series of lunch and learns, you might be able to cover the various topics necessary to help educate and inform the raise the IQ of the engineering teams um, to help prevent those type of attacks in the future.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It absolutely makes sense. I, I like your point about raising raising up those engineering teams and enabling them because right at the end of the day, those are the people that are building the thing that becomes the attack surface, right? That, that becomes exploitable. And actually, I'm curious about this ransomware attack you brought up, and I understand you probably can't give too many details, but, uh, you know, what did you learn? Like, what what would you do differently to try to mitigate or prevent that sort of thing in the future?
1: Uh well I I came I joined that organization um, following the ransomware attack so one thing I oh, learned okay. was uh being uh, ransomware will increase your security budget <laughs> so
0: <laughs> having
1: having events and attacks happen to your organization all of a sudden catches the eye of the executives um and I also learned that in the aftermath of a large event like that the engineering teams are hyper aware and conscious of what can go wrong that is a great opportunity to have the conversation about what things can you do differently next time and to get their buy-in. Like it's a fresh wound, a fresh scar. They know well and good how many hours they might've stayed up overnight or how many days they were up trying to remediate uh, the issue. In the future, you can say, hey, if you don't want that to happen again,
0: these are some of the things that we can do to help to mitigate that. Yeah. Yeah, and it's it's, I mean, it's unfortunate that it takes that uh, the personal pain to inspire change behavior in a lot of cases. But but I mean, to your point, like the the old expression of like you know you should learn from others' mistakes, but but like you're a lot more likely to learn from your own because <laughs> they hurt a lot more. Uh I, I want to circle back to uh to the Nike thing, which is one topic that I'm that I'm kind of curious about. Um, you know, when you're when you're making that internal transfer and going over to security, you mentioned they had the hackathon Insidious, uh, which is a very, very uh, creepy name. <laughs> like when you're making that transfer, you know, did you, did you realize beforehand, like, Hey, I want to be in security, you know, or, do, or were they sort of recruiting you into their organization? You know, like, what do you think is the process for getting people that have been developers to want to care about security?
1: Um, A little bit of both. My passion really started out uh, early as security. I just never really pursued it um, as a career. Um, As everybody knows, getting into security a lot of times can be a hurdle simply because security is built on top of all of the other technologies. And unless you really understand a lot of these other technologies, it can be really challenging to jump in and say, hey, I'm going to do security on web applications. Well, you need to know about web applications, first and foremost developing web applications is a way to, to learn about them and to really understand the inner workings, then when you add security on top of that, it, it's much more easy. Uh, and also throughout my journey of, I've, I've, uh, you know, this is a job, so I had to work and make money and pay bills and um, software development opportunities uh, were a lot more plentiful than, uh, you know, trying to get a, a security opportunity. So these days that's changed and I think there's a lot more security opportunities, but 20 years ago, I didn't see, there wasn't a LinkedIn that with, you know, dozens and dozens of security roles that were available um, for people. So um, you kind of have to go with what the current market bears. And if that's a uh, development with an emphasis in security, or if that's a pure security role, you know, it kind of depends on what your personal circumstances are.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, you know, I haven't been in the industry long enough to speak to it, but I've heard that from quite a few people that, you know, 20 years ago, for example, like application security was just being thought about. Like it didn't even really exist yet. It was a it was a concept that people were starting to explore. Whereas today you see it at a lot of organizations, you know, they have dedicated teams. Um and and one point you brought up that was I think is really cool is you said, you know, if you want to secure web applications, you should probably build web applications. So my question to you is, do you think it's what do you think the re- the restrictions should be on who goes into application security? Like should you have to have been a software developer? Are there other ways to get there, you know, like what are what do you think are the responsible like barriers to entry, I guess, for that sort of role?
1: Well, um security is a knowledge-based role. So um I don't I wouldn't say that it's a requirement that you become a software developer to get into security however if you are a software developer you have the uh, the thorough understanding your ability as a security professional is going to be uh, greatly increased if you understand apis if you understand uh different architectures of applications you understand uh, deployment mechanisms um if you understand just the life of developer like a lot of times in interviews and when i talk to people just having the the contextual understanding of what a deployment life cycle looks like like what is goes through the engineer's life like did they get are they are they agile did they get a ticket to write a you know a story that is a specific body of work like just understanding that helps you as a security professional to know where you can insert security um some some people like to apply security at the end of the transaction let let a, a an application developer build their application and then go and review it, um, and that that's fine. But that also is very expensive for the organization to then go back and refactor the application code to fix any vulnerabilities that may have been found. If you, as a security professional, understand the lifecycle of how the application is being built and you partner with the engineer or engineering team as they are building out the application, you can make Uh, recommendations, comments, improvements to the application as it's being uh, built and delivered. So every code commit can be reviewed. Instead of waiting until there's a package ready to be deployed, you can be checking out the commits. You can be looking at the architecture and the design. You could be talking to them all along the way about how maybe they're doing uh, roles and access controls or um, how they're you know, putting in the uh, separation, logical separation into uh, the application itself. Like if you have those conversations early based on your understanding of how the application development lifecycle and that journey exists, then your impact as a security professional will be much more. So uh, I don't think that you have to be an application developer to get into security, but understanding it and understanding that what who you're helping, that's your customer when you become security is that engineer. And if you understand their life and the journey that they follow day to day, you'll be much more effective as a security professional.
0: Yeah, absolutely, I think that was very well-spoken. And sort of, it touches on two two important points, you know, like the soft skills and the quote unquote, and the hard skills, quote unquote, hard skills. Like, uh, one thing you brought up is the, the engineer is your customer right? That's the person that you are responsible for, for working with. Um, and you know, would you, would you mind speaking to, let's say you want to interface with the development team, right? And to your point, you want to get involved early. Um, you know, what are your tips or tricks or how do you, how do you build that relationship with the person that is your customer so that they're more willing to work with you? Yeah, absolutely.
1: Um, being, being in security can be a very high friction role. You're, job is to tell people that they did something wrong. So it can be a little bit sticky, but, um, I think that's where the soft skills come in it, uh, being a trusted advisor is the most valuable thing you can do as a security professional, build the relationship as silly as it sounds, jump on zoom calls, make jokes, chat with them, uh, build that personal relationship because you're going to have to break some bad news to them throughout your relationship. You're going to have to tell them things that they don't like, and you're going to have to point out things that aren't good in their life. Um, I heard some people describe it as calling their baby ugly. It's like, wow, you made this awesome application, but I have some security concerns that I have to talk to you about.
0: And we have to having that close
1: relationship makes it all the all the difference. Being able to just chat with somebody and just have a friendly relationship with them and talk to them about it versus having an adversarial relationship in which they are going to
0: likely not be receptive at all. Yeah. No, that that absolutely makes sense. And can I ask can I ask you this question then? Have you ever worked in sales?
1: Uh well I mean in cybersecurity a lot of it a lot of cybersecurity is sales. I haven't worked in sales directly, but I've had my own company in which you do you know, you have to sell yourself as a professional. And also uh I've worked as a sales engineer. Where you are being the technical advocate with the sales professional, helping to uh, lead a customer down a down a path that equals them purchasing your product. And as a security professional, you're always a salesman. You're you're talking to a, an application development team that has a finite set of resources, their time, and their um, uh, their bandwidth, if you will. Um, and you're selling them on the idea that they need to do something different to reduce risk to the organization.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. And, and getting people to do what you need them to do, right. For the benefit of the business as a whole. And you know, it's definitely, a, it could be a tricky game.
1: Very tricky. Yeah. Having the the hard skills, as you were saying, knowing what's wrong, uh, coming up with a list of vulnerabilities, like anybody can run a run a, a SAS tool and dump out a, a, a big you know list of things that are bad. Taking that list and doing something about it, that becomes the challenge of the security professional. How do you um, get that list of items in front of the right people at the right time to actually make changes to the code base to reduce risk to the organization that you're helping
0: to protect? Yeah, that... Makes sense to me, and so then that I guess leads to the question of, can you give us a specific example? Like, let's say there's a SAS scanner and a bunch of findings. You know, if if you're responsible for driving action, driving some sort of change, uh, can you give us a specific example of what that might look like? A time you did it, or or something that maybe is a systemic issue. Um, you know, whatever is important to you.
1: Yeah, well, I can give some some different. Um... Uh, scenarios that I've I've found to be effective Um, as a security professional a lot of times you can do the pre-work and you can basically do the, the, the lifting for the engineering team if you go to the engineering team and you say I've got a list of things that are broken or that are wrong that you need to fix they need to go figure out okay where is that at, who owns it how do I fix this Right? You're putting a lot of extra work and a lot of weight on their shoulders in hopes that they're going to figure all of that out and deliver to you an updated package that doesn't have that vulnerability in it. An alternative method is for you as a security professional to figure all of those things out. You have access to the code base. You can review the code. Uh, you, can, you can figure out what potential remediation options there are. Some of the SaaS tools will literally tell you Oh, you used uh, insecure random in Java. You should just use secure random. Oh, okay. Well, that seems easy enough. Other things are architectural. And it's like, hey, did you actually do any user access controls? Are you validating the input from these fields? Uh, Are you validating the input from the APIs? Uh, Things like that, you as a security professional can, can essentially tee that up for the engineering team. And then when you go to them, you have something much more specific to ask. Hey, in this class, you are you're uh, ingesting some data, that data is not being sanitized and is being directly reflected into the application or into the database. We need to fix that by doing X. Provide provide them with a step-by-step or a directional guide so that they have a very easy-to-achieve checkbox. Like, okay, I need to fix this item in this package and deliver that for security. Awesome. And then when they do that, you can praise them for it. Giving people kudos, giving people high fives, giving them positive reinforcement and feedback just helps to build that relationship and build that goodwill. Um, You as a security professional don't need to say, like, I fixed all of these things. You can say, hey, you can be the mouth of the engineering organization and say, hey, look, this engineering team fixed these items. This engineering team has a product that has no vulnerabilities or we went from a thousand and now we have 10 right helping them to uh prioritize and to remediate those items teeing them up for success and then championing them when they are successful i think is uh, very valuable in building the relationship and ultimately gets your job done your job is to re- reduce the risk you can only do that if that the engineering team is working in alignment with what you
0: need to get done to reduce that risk. Yeah, that makes total sense. And and I like your point about, uh, championing them and, and using them as, you know, it's their work. Like they're the ones that went through and actually fixed the issues, right? They made it better. And, and it was just your job to facilitate that. Um, and one thing I thought that I thought was cool was you brought up diving into the code base, right? Look at, oh, this class has this method that's insecure whatever it may be. Um, Have you ever done that in a sort of lunch and learn situation where you go, hey, check this out because you guys didn't sanitize inputs. I'm going to go into your app and I'm going to input this field and I'm going to exploit this vulnerability. Like, have you ever tried that before? Or have you found that to be sort of like a a route um, to to add emphasis to the value that you're bringing?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, And I found that that can be useful, especially if you have a resistant team. If you've got a team, for whatever reason, you don't have the relationship, you're not in the trusted advisor status with them and you need them to really pay attention, you can literally take, like you were saying, an input field that's not validating. Show them a reflective attack as part of the lesson and say, we're going to use your application as the host here. Let me show you what happens and let's talk about how to fix it. And by helping them and educating them and being a partner to them, you are not only building the relationship, but you're literally uh, teeing them up for remediation.
0: Yeah. So you, you have your laboratory environment built for you by your team <laughs> and then you just get to go in yeah. and show it to them. Right. Which is effectively is a pin
1: test, right? So when, when pin testing happens, a lot of times that's basically how it goes. You're going to have maybe even a third party do the pin testing. They're going to output a pin test report. You will help to disseminate that report review where that uh, the findings are in the application Find the app, the owners of those items, and then work with them to validate when they made uh, some adjustment to the code or
0: put in compensating controls to remediate that issue. Yeah. Then can I ask you, the process of finding the owner, uh, is is that something that you've ever had challenges with, or can you can you talk more to like what finding the owner of something entails? Yeah,
1: absolutely. Well, I mean, if uh, you can use blame if you want to get down to the most basic level. Um, you can see who committed that piece of code. There, of course, are tricks and challenges with that, whether the you know the code base was forked or cloned. That can overwrite some of the history, and you have to like really do some some sleuthing to try to figure out when and where that actual code came from. Uh, as a tech lead at Nike, one of my uh, first projects was we converted from SBN to Git. And I was the branch manager, so I committed all of the code uh, in the Git repository. And, and so for a long time, people would come to me and they were like, we see you committed this code on this date. And I'm like, hold up. <laughs> yes, I did, but I just, I just copied it from the SVN repository. <laughs> I, I didn't actually write all of the code for the entire code base. I just moved it. So like, there, there can be some challenges with doing that. But, um yeah, generally speaking, that sleuthing is uh, part of the challenge. And sometimes, just because somebody committed the code, they may not be there anymore, or their role might have changed, or uh, maybe a new team is working on it, or maybe that person is a, a senior dev, and they're tasked with, you know, doing the next thing, and then some junior dev may backfill and fix items like that that come up over time. So,, um, again, that comes back to your trusted, Advisor relationships, and um, you know, do you do you know the Scrum Master? Do you know the project manager? Do you know the product owners uh, in your organization? And do you have a relationship with them that you can message them and say, "Hey, I've got you know this code that needs fixed, and it looks like it belongs to this person. Can you help me find a resource and get this into your sprint planning? Can you can we get a
0: story? How can we batch this up and get this remediated?" Yeah. Dan- that's honestly i'm surprised you didn't just tell nike that you wrote their entire code base i feel like you could have demanded a big raise if you're like yeah thanks no thanks (laughs) um so you, you mentioned uh you know you mentioned knowing like knowing the scrum master right knowing all these different people so how important is it for a security professional to understand the org chart right understand the different teams at play and and how they interact with each other and each of their responsibilities you know like what what is that what what's the like barrier to entry or, or like the minimum level of knowledge you should have as a security person uh the more you know what they say right
1: so um whether you you have a very formal document documented process maybe using a, a spreadsheet and documenting like this application as related to these people or if you're just using something as like AD to figure out who's the manager who's the lead for a team um no being able to source back a product or, or an item to the owner is invaluable um if you're in one of the very few organizations that has an actual asset inventory and has owners listed for everything that's updated and accurate that's awesome
0: uh my experience is that's few and far between so yeah yeah uh it and do you approach like the conversations differently? You know, if you're talking to the developer themselves, right? Like how would that conversation be different than if you're talking to the scrum master or someone that's more in a sort of like project management role?
1: Yeah, well, scrum, man, scrum master or project manager, they're going to be interested in how long is it going to take and what level of resource do I need to execute this fix? Uh, the engineer is going to know, want to know, uh, what do I need to fix? What do I need to change? And you as a security professional really need to know both of those to have those conversations because um, even if you do talk to the engineer, you're probably still going to need to talk to the scrum master and get them to uh, add a story of the backlog and bring it into the next sprint. So you're, you're going to be asking favors from the both of those people. One, you need to actually do the work and fix it and to understand and, and be aligned with you like, hey, I need you to do this thing to fix the code versus... Uh, the Scrum Master, that you're saying, hey, uh, this person, I need you to allocate uh, one or three points worth of work to go remediate this item. Hopefully it's not a big giant refactor. If it is, maybe that's uh, your miss <laughs> uh, earlier in the process. Maybe you waited too long to to see that there would be a problem. Uh, but nevertheless, you're, you're probably going to have to be asking both of them uh, different questions and getting both of their buy-in Uh, so that ultimately you can get
0: the risk remediated. And so when you think about, you know, asking them to add a story to the backlog and bring it into the next sprint, have you ever seen a team that will add in stories to a sprint that are like expected security remediations? Like, have you ever seen that done proactively or is it pretty much always thrown into the backlog and then brought up to, you know, when it can be resolved? Uh, That entirely
1: depends on criticality. And that's another role of the security professional is to determine how critical is it. Are we talking about a high severity, uh, not high CVE, but actual high impact to your business? Um, Is it a a RCE issue? Is this something that's externally exploitable? Maybe that does literally need to be moved into this spread right now. And the current work that they have needs to get bounced out. Uh, other stuff. It maybe is just uh, maintenance items. Maybe it's a low criticality, and, yeah, okay, uh, a lot of people say uh, mediums and lows. Yeah, put them in the backlog. Um, when you have Sprint where you got a few extra story points or you got engineers, they get done with their short points early and just want to do some extra code cleanup or uh, maybe you get an intern for the summer. Awesome. I've got a list of stuff for you, friend. <laughs> we've got some, we've got some easy to remediate items that we just need hands on keyboard to go back through and do some code cleanup and fix these little items and test it. Um, so that that can be very effective. But you, as a security professional, ultimately have to determine what the criticality is, and then based on that criticality, uh, work with the team to get them to
0: prioritize accordingly. Yeah, that. I, I like your point about criticality. Like, how important is it? And one example you brought up was in an RCE or a remote code execution. That somebody could actively exploit, and and so when you get an example like that, um, you know, like you take log for like J, log for shell, for example, or whatever it may be, um, this thing that you know can can lead to remote code execution. What's been what's the strategy for determining can someone actually exploit it, right? Because it's just because a library exists doesn't necessarily mean it's exploitable. Like sort of what's that process to prioritize those things?
1: Well, sure. Uh, The priority should be, is it in production or not? Is it in the dev uh, pipe, or is it actually in production? If it is in production, then you have to check, is there ingress? Can somebody reach it from the outside, or is it a lateral movement-type issue, where if they had internal access, could they laterally move and then take advantage of the RCE? So, um, yeah, just a general, general assessment of where that vulnerability sits and what the accessibility is to it. If it, uh, that happens, especially with like log4j, uh, definitely there's a lot of systems that um, had a dependency on a library that had log4j, and that library or that function was never used. Okay, yes, it technically is in your codebase or linked to your codebase, but it's not necessarily exploitable. So that's where uh, your risk calculation comes in there. And when you're looking at those uh, vulnerabilities and you're trying to calculate them, your your risk calculation should definitely take into consideration whether it is externally reachable, if it is exploitable, if it's in production or non-production environments, and kind of help you to gauge
0: what the level of risk actually is. Yeah, that, that makes complete sense. And wh- where do you think uh, like the type of information being accessed fits in? Like, is that is that another component um, that that matters, or if it's now, if it's remote code execution, is it just like fix it immediately, no matter what? Yeah. or If it's externally
1: accessible RCE, then yeah, that's got that's got to be got to be a fix, and maybe maybe that could be something where um you can put a compensated control in place. Maybe you have a web application firewall that you can you know okay, I can turn off access to that uh, function or that port or whatever. Um, but yeah, if it if it's not externally accessible, ex- uh, accessible, then uh, that definitely reduces the the likelihood and reduces the
0: probability of that vulnerability being exploited. Yeah, that absolutely. Yeah, it makes complete sense. Um, and so I, I want to get a couple pieces of advice from you, which is, you know, you were working on what, the, the transformation projects, right, for a lot of your career. And what I'm curious about is where do you feel like you get the biggest bang for your buck? Like if you were going to be building a security program from scratch, you know what are the big wins you can get early? Yeah, I, a lot of times
1: I see teams chasing after North Star tools. Everybody wants the best in best in class tooling or whatever. I see the biggest bang for buck in just getting what you have on hand. Are you using AWS? AWS. Doesn't have the best security tools in the industry, but they have security tools, and they're okay. The I see a lot of value in just making them work and getting utilizing them to their fullest potential um, across the board. So that way, you have a full suite of security tooling in place, relatively low cost, relatively low effort, and maybe not particularly high value, but some value at least you have them in place. Then you could iteratively go through those and say, okay, well, uh, this particular tool isn't giving us the level of quality results that we want. Then you can decide, okay, well, what tool would be better than that? Where can I upgrade or where what, where, where does my budget allow me to uh, add an additional tool in that space? Um, so I'm at, I really like just... Uh, uh, at Nike, I guess we always called it uh, the low-hanging fruit. Just fix the easy stuff. Use the tools you got. Use what you got there with the resources that you currently have, and and then that let that help guide you as to where do you need to bolster. Do we need uh, something better specifically? Do we have use cases for it being better? Do we have situation where maybe uh, there was an issue or a vulnerability um, that highlighted the fact that the tool that we have in place isn't doing everything we need it to do. We have friction for our users, whether that's like access reviews, maybe, oh, okay, well, now we need to have a different tool for access reviews. Now we can talk about, well, this is the process we currently have. These are the areas that we're having problems. And then when you review the um, half dozen products out there that are going to cost hundreds of thousands of dollars, you can say... Do those products, Does each individual product, does it solve the pain points that we are experiencing in the included product, the product that we already have rolled out? If you're trying to go from no product at all to any product, it can be very challenging for teams to really figure out and determine what a, a good value spend is. You can spend a lot of money for a tool, never implement it fully, not have the staff to operate it fully, Not have the organizational processes in place to to support it, and
0: you just spent money. But did you get any value out of it? So, yeah, no, it's it's an important thing to make sure that anytime you're you're investing in a solution, that when the solution's rolled out, it it's doing something to help you, right? Like if it if it's what what they call shelfware, right? If if it's like just sitting in the background, uh, then then what was the point of all the work and all the effort and all the time and and probably the conversations to convince finance to even let you buy it in the first place, right?
1: Right. Well, and all the arm wrestling to get teams to change the work that they're doing, so to support you in deploying it and rolling it out and and operationalizing it. Like, there's a lot of politics that go into just getting the resources from all of the other teams to roll out security tooling. And if it ultimately
0: doesn't provide anybody value, you lose a lot of credibility. Yeah. So you're putting your life on the line when you bring something in. Your reputation, Uh, at least. Maybe not. Yeah. Yeah, It's probably a better way to put it, your reputation on the line.
1: Uh, Go ahead. Yeah. And being a trusted advisor is super important. And if you get everybody to invest in your new tool as the trusted advisor, they believe in you, you roll it out and it's a big flop or nobody uses it or it's high friction, it's annoying people, you lose that credibility and uh, your ability to be a trusted
0: advisor is reduced. Yeah. And and that's, in, like you said, security is such a political game where you have to know these people and have these relationships that, yeah, taking that step down is, is not, uh, it's not good. Right. Uh, and, and so it makes me curious when you are investing in a new tool, um, you know, tools can be internal, like built or external, but when you're investing in a new tool or something that you're trying to bring in, what what are the like decision criteria? Like, what are the conversations that you have? What do you need for a proof of concept? You know, like what what proves to you that, hey, this is worth putting a reputation on the line to bring this in? Yeah, well, I think that
1: really goes back to having something in place already, whether that's the uh, included tooling in AWS or Azure, uh, having something in place, even if it's... Um, uh, or free open source software, have something in place that's doing generally what you are expecting it to do. And that can help highlight what your use cases are. Once you can figure out what your use cases are, when you're evaluating the new tool, you can use those use cases as the use cases for the new tool. And for each of your individual use cases, you can say, does this new tool provide me value in this area? The free Tool doesn't there are the free tool's limited in this space, and I want a tool that's better than that. Does the tool I'm going to potentially be paying for do a better job? How does it How does it do a better job? So um, gathering those use cases, I think, is super important. Which, again, in cybersecurity world, is kind of a on the outer periphery of cybersecurity, but in the software development world, that's that's front and center. Having your use cases, uh, whether that's user experience or uh, functionality of the application, is really what should drive how you build and deliver a product. Uh, but in cybersecurity, well, I think we need to use that more. We need to tee up what are our use cases, where's the value, what is the, uh, the user experience for our users, and when we implement security tools even, we should really be thinking about minimizing friction for the engineering teams and understanding what if I turn this tool on, is this going to give us a bunch of false positives? Is this going to get blow up their inbox with a bunch of alerts that they don't need? Uh, again, you're kind of chipping away at your credibility.
0: If what you deliver doesn't meet their needs and their, the use cases. So. Yeah, that's beautifully spoken. I, I, it makes absolute sense of it. And just, just as we're getting, you know, pretty low on time here and I want to give you the opportunity to, uh, give any, any advice you have for anyone. Um, and then, and then also, you know, a call to action. If there's anything that you want to promote um, on the podcast, so do you want to take a second and and talk through, you know, either one of those things?
1: Oh, uh, sure. I'll talk about partnership, um, being a trusted advisor, and being a partner to engineering teams is how you can be successful in security. Being confrontational or high friction is not helpful to not only your team but to the security industry in general. Being in close partnership with engineers and engineering teams to really change the dynamic on how we work together and how we coexist in an organization to help defend the organization and to overall
0: minimize the risk. Yeah, wow. Well, yeah, thank you for sharing that, Justice. Amazing advice. Um, And to everybody listening, make sure you're working on those relationships. And uh, if you have any questions, make sure you blow up Justice's inbox. (laughs) Perfect. yeah. Th- thanks so much for joining today, Justice. It was great talking to you uh, and I hope you enjoy the rest of your day. Thank you, Jacob. Thanks for tuning in to this episode of Champions of Security. Be sure to come back next week. We're going to have another exciting guest on this very streaming platform. See you there.